As you're sticking with us, let's turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew's Gospel chapter 22. Now some of you were here a month or so ago when we went through the triumphal entry in the middle of July. Now it is the end of August and we're talking about taxes. And You wonder if the preacher even has a calendar. But we're just going through Matthew, people. That's all we're doing and responding to the word of the Lord as it comes to us. This morning I'll be reading Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him, Jesus, with his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. As a a young boy growing up in Beaver, Pennsylvania, and I'll pardon you if you don't know where Beaver is, it's just outside Aliquippa, (laughs) which is outside of Pittsburgh, so... Now you know. Growing up in Beaver, I had a next-door neighbor. We were in kind of a rural, mountainous area. We didn't even have a street name. It was Rural Route Number 1 in Beaver, Pennsylvania. And there was a house just across the way from ours that had a boy my age named Robbie, as I was called at the time, and we were best friends. And we would spend all of our free time you know, running through the, the swamps and acres of forest behind us or in each other's houses if the weather was bad. And I, I remember one time when I was about six or seven years old, I was in Robbie Smith. We had to clarify which Robbie. I was in Robbie Smith's house, and his mother was feeding us a snack, and she tried to make me eat strawberries. And I don't eat strawberries. And I explained to her that I don't eat strawberries. And she said, but you're in my house, and you will eat strawberries when I give them to you. And I said in my child's mind, you know, what authority does she have over me? And I said with my words, what every kid is going to say in that situation, you're not my There you go. You're not my mother, okay? In other words, you don't have authority to tell me to do this. And she took about 12 seconds to get my mom on the phone. She could have just hollered out the window and had my mom tell me, you're in her house, you do what she says, you eat what she gives you. So I did the only thing I could do, and I left her house, because I didn't want to be under that kind of authority. As a Christian, as a child of God, and as a citizen of heaven, what authority can any earthly institution have over us? Does anyone other than God have the right to tell us what to do? Jesus tells us, in a way, yes, but we must be careful to note the reason that we have to defer to other authorities. We respect the authority of others because we belong to God. 
And that seems like an odd bit of reasoning that Jesus gives us, but I want us to follow it because our tendency is to avoid obedience at all costs. Our tendency is to put ourselves on the throne or to use God as an excuse to not have to do what we don't want to do. I'm, uh, you're not my mother. I don't have to eat what you give me. You're not my God. I don't have to do what you tell me. The reasoning is the same. But Jesus shows us that His people seek to honor Him in every earthly relationship. And as we obey every earthly governing institution, we do it because we belong to God. But that is not easy. It's, it's citizenship. That's what we're talking about today. And again, I want to emphasize this isn't a cherry-picked text to deal with any particular thing that's going on in our world or in our nation. This is where the Word of God leads us this morning to talk about citizenship. And I want to look at three aspects in this passage. One is the, the challenge of citizenship. I want us to first consider the challenge of citizenship. If you were with us uh, in Sunday school a few months back when we were discussing the topic of evangelism, and we had a lesson on how to, uh, how to answer and how to respond to people's questions about the gospel. We talked about how there are actually different kinds of questions. Does anybody remember this? Some questions are not sincere at all. They're, they're asked just to cause problems or to try to embarrass you or to change the topic or to expose your foolishness in the mind of the person asking the question. That's the kind of question we have here. In verse 15, the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his own words. Basically, they had learned that there was nothing that they could say or do to stop Jesus' influence and ministry and his following. The crowds were getting behind him. He had just entered the city, the capital city, Jerusalem, with a, with a following of people declaring him king. They had tried again and again to, to shut Jesus down and it wasn't working. And so what they had to do was get him to slip up and say something that would put an end to it all. If they could get him to say something that would make him foolish, then they could squash this movement. And they're so desperate to do this that they make an alliance of sorts. You've heard the saying, the enemy of my enemy is my... The enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? You've heard, okay, maybe you all are not as conniving and devious as the people I talk to. The saying is, the enemy, of my, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. We can get together and conspire against our common enemy. And that's what happens here in verse 16. The Pharisees send their disciples to Jesus along with the Herodians. And that might not mean much to you, but imagine, uh, for example, an Amish community deciding to team up with Antifa because they have a common enemy that they want to take down. That's how extreme this partnership was. The Pharisees despised Roman rule, but accepted it reluctantly. They played along because they had to, but they were hoping for the overthrow of Rome. The Herodians were those uh, who were part of Herod's support network. King Herod, the fake king that the Romans had put in place over the Jews. The Jews despised Herod. And so the Herodians and the Pharisees were kind of on opposite sides of that issue, but they both looked at Jesus and said, this man's a threat. And maybe we can team up and do something about it. And it was actually a pretty clever team up because if Jesus answered one way and said, no, it's not lawful to pay the tax, 
then the Herodians could be like, ha, got you. You're against Rome. And they would call down the authorities to punish Jesus. But if Jesus said, no, it is, it is right and lawful to pay the tax, the tax, then the Pharisees could say, ha, 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 did everybody hear that, all you people that hate Rome? Jesus supports Rome. You want to follow a guy who supports Rome? So either way, he answered their question. He was trapped. So after some false flattery, they present the question in verse 17. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? What they're asking about is the nature of the challenge of citizenship. For ancient Israel in the Old Testament, things were much easier. Their king was established by God. The laws of their nation were handed down by the Lord. Their kingdom was supposed to be ruled by God's law. Serving your country, serving your king, paying your taxes, these things were all a service to the one true God. But now things had changed. Rome had taken over their land. Rome had imposed their own laws. Rome collected taxes to support pagan Roman leaders. How could a follower of God possibly serve and support a pagan king? Would that not mean inevitable compromise? Would that not be unfaithful to God? Should they not resist everything that Rome told them to do? I'm not asking you to simply imagine yourself in their situation. I'm asking you to recognize that the same challenges exist in your own life and not only when it comes to governments and nations. The application of this are broader than that. What the Pharisees and the Herodians had done was to try to, to, try to set up a question of either or. Either you are loyal to God and reject Roman authority, or you obey Roman rule and compromise your faithfulness to God. They presented a false dichotomy, a forced choice between two options that don't tell the whole story. And we do the same thing. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to feel that if they want to be a sincere, sold-out, radical disciple of Jesus, they need to sacrifice time with their family. I even, in seminary, recall talking with guys who said, yeah, we had the conversation with our kids. You know, We told them because Daddy serves the church and Daddy wants to serve Jesus, they're not going to get time with Daddy. Scripture doesn't tell us that. Or we believe that if we want to follow Jesus, we can't have a career. We can't work hard and aspire to do great things. Or we need to disconnect from any involvement in government and we have to not be, not be informed and not be aware and not care about those things. And we see, to be honest, some justification for that way of thinking in Scripture. We see that Scripture tells us to take up our cross and follow Jesus, which seems pretty exclusive. We see Scripture saying that you have to hate your family if you want to follow and love the Lord. We see Scripture saying that you can't serve God or money. You have to love one and hate the other. That's a pretty clear either or. We scripture say, see Scripture saying that you don't put your trust in princes and leaders and governments, but instead trust the Lord. I mean, that's all Scripture. And there is truth in those ideas in that we should never put our devotion, our final devotion or our trust 
or our hope or our loyalty in anything above God. So how then can we expect to be a good citizen? How can we expect to be a good employee? How can we expect to be a good neighbor, a good spouse, a good parent, a good child? When Scripture seems to push us away from loyalty to earthly connections. That's the challenge of citizenship. A stark example of this comes to my mind is William Carey. Which if you're familiar with that name, you, you think William Carey, the, the father of modern missions. He was a, a British um, shoemaker who, in his study of Scripture, and just came to understand the, the call to go to the nations. And the famous story of him trying to share that with other ministers and saying, should we not be sending missionaries? to these nations that do not have the gospel? And he was famously told by one such minister, young man, if God wants to get the gospel out to the heathens, he will do it without my help or yours. And he said, that's not acceptable. He he led the charge into the mission field, spent the rest of his life in India. Did amazing, amazing things. Translated the Bible into so many languages. Established missions in that continent that had a lasting effect And all of that was wonderful. And we we praise God for what He did through William Carey. But there was a cost to all that. There's another side of the story. An aspect of William Carey's ministry that we should not commend. He saw himself as having a choice to either be a husband and father or to serve the Lord. And he chose to serve the Lord. And in doing so, he actively chose to neglect his family, his wife, went literally insane. She lost her mind and died on the mission field. His children were raised by other missionaries and didn't even know their father, though they lived in the same area as him. They didn't know him as father. He completely neglected all of his children. In our zeal for the kingdom of God, we might make the mistake of accepting a worldly view in how to be zealous. A view that forces us to make a choice that God does not call us to make. How many more examples could we give? What about those who make the other choice? Who say that if I have to choose between God and my career, or God and my family, or God and my nation, then what God is asking of me is too much. I'd rather pay the Roman tax because it brings us peace. It keeps us comfortable. The challenge then, is how do we transcend? How do we rise above the false choice that the world puts on us? Like, like the Pharisees and the Herodians were trying to put this false choice on Jesus. Is it one or the other? Is it Rome or God? Which is it, Lord? The challenge is how do we live in God's kingdom and live well in the world where He has placed us? Because for all the passages I mentioned earlier that seem to push us into a conflict of loyalties, into a battle for our devotion, there are plenty more passages in Scripture that would show us that we are called as Christians because we are Christians. We are called to be good neighbors. We are called to be good citizens. We are called to be good family members. We are called to be good employees. We're going to look at some of those passages in a few minutes here. But the theme that I want you to have in mind is in order to answer the challenge of citizenship, what Scripture tells us is that you can only do these things. You can only be a good citizen, a good neighbor, a good employee, a good spouse. You can only do that if you're submitted to God and belong to Him. 
So the first thing we see here is the challenge. We consider the challenge to citizenship. The next thing that Jesus shows us in his answer is how we fulfill the duties of citizenship. How we apply our responsibility to obey others. In verse 19, he says, Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. A denarius was worth about a day's wage. And in Jesus' day, it would have a certain look about it. A denarius would have a, a carved picture or image of the face or the bust of Caesar on it. And so it had Caesar's image and likeness. It would have the name of Caesar on it, which actually in extended form was something like Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. So ascribing deity to this Caesar, which was offensive to the Jews. And it would have the inscription on the back calling Caesar the high priest. All of those aspects of the coin, every aspect of carrying that coin around would be offensive. False claims of deity, false claims of priesthood. And what are those taxes going to pay for? That's a whole other question, isn't it? Roads, yes, aqueducts, so-called infrastructure, military protection, but also pagan feasts, violent games, and other horrible things. Every aspect of paying the tax was disgusting to a believer and follower of God. Jesus takes the coin. In verse 20 and 21, whose likeness and whose inscription is this? And they said it's Caesar's. His, his picture's on it, his name, his inscription. And he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's. One word we have to understand in that sentence is the word render. There are other Greek words Matthew could have used that would mean pay. To pay somebody something. To give somebody something. But Matthew chose a specific word that means to repay. To give back to someone what already belongs to them. His immediate point is that since the coin is made by Caesar, has Caesar's likeness and Caesar's name, it's made by and comes from Caesar, then it is Caesar. Just give it back to him and don't worry about it. And if we rush to judgment on this, we may conclude that the application of what Jesus is saying is that we don't owe the government or anyone else anything at all except what it already owns. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if we could apply it that way? But let's slow down and reflect on the bigger principle in play. Jesus is affirming that other people and even other institutions have a rightful claim on us. And we, because we belong to God, give them what they have a right to. For example, continuing on the theme of government for just a minute, in Romans 13, we see that we're told to pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And in 1 Timothy 2, we see there's more that we owe our governing leaders Paul says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We are not just to give taxes to our government. We are to give them our prayer, our attention. We are to pray that they will lead well. But it's not just government that has a claim on us. In 1 Peter, the apostle writes, Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, 
Honor the emperor. The bookends on that verse are tough. We honor everyone. And we honor the emperor. The emperor, as Peter's writing this, is Nero, who fiddled while Rome burned, who was killing Christians, who killed his way into power. There's nothing legitimate about that in anybody's eyes. And Peter says, honor him. Honor him. But we don't just honor everyone. In Romans 12, verse 18, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We seek to live at peace with others. We do everything we can to make that happen. And back in Romans 13 again, owe no one anything except to love each other. We could list verses until the end of our time here this morning. I'm not going to do that. But there are verses that tell us what we owe our family. We owe them time. We owe them support. We owe them love. We owe them obedience. There are verses about what we owe those we work for and those we do business with. We owe them honesty. We owe them integrity. We owe them hard work. We owe them faithfulness. But here's what you need to see in the background of all of that. There's a reason, a foundational reason that we owe these things. It's not that we have these duties and God works around them. It's not that our duty to the Lord is just one duty among many that we have. No, the duty of citizenship, what we owe to Caesar, to our neighbor, and to our family, we owe them because God has given them that right. We owe them something. We owe them something. Because we owe God everything. In Romans 13, again, there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. And back to 1 Peter, who told us to honor everyone, even Nero. He said, be subject, why? For the Lord's sake. For God's sake, be subject to every human institution. Whether it's the HOA, the local government, your boss, or Caesar himself. And now I know that what I'm saying is not new to anyone. Most of you know this, but just to be absolutely clear, even though the Lord has given us the right, has given, I'm sorry, has given the right to others to receive things from us, He has not given them an absolute right. If any government or employer or spouse or anyone demands what God has forbidden or forbids what God requires, we respond as did the disciples in Acts chapter 5, saying we must obey God rather than men. Just as Daniel and his friends did under Nebuchadnezzar, refusing to obey laws that would cause them to disobey God. Not laws they didn't like, not laws they just didn't agree with, but laws that forced them to disobey God. That's the line. And Jesus says, give to Caesar what Caesar has a right to. And we learn to give others what they have a right to. Obedience, taxes, honor, prayer, peace, integrity. Serving God does not free us from being responsible to others. Being in Robbie Smith's house doesn't free me from having to listen to his mom just because she's not my mom. No, my mom has given her the authority over me. and The Lord has given others authority over us. Do we obey them because they deserve it? Do we obey them because we find them worthy of obedience? No. Caesar was not worthy 
of respect. We give to Caesar and every other authority in our lives not because they deserve it, but because God is sovereign, God is in control, and we trust Him in what He's told us to do. So in the midst of the challenge of citizenship, we see that we are called to fulfill the duties of citizenship. But finally, Jesus tells us that we have to remember our true citizenship. Jesus' answer wasn't just render to Caesar what is Caesar's. There's a second part that is more significant in verse 21. Render to God the things that are God's. Which begs the question, what is God's? Many of us who are raised in the church might be quick to answer 10%. Right? 10% of everything, of all I have, belongs to God. And I have heard, and I'm sure some of you have heard, the sermon on this passage that says, Jesus is telling you to pay your tax and pay your tithe. Right? No. Because we've already seen that render to Caesar is about so much more than your tax. We shouldn't be surprised then if I tell you that rendering to God what is God's is about much, 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 much more than 10%. So back to the question, what is God's? If we had uh, kids in here that had been learning the children's catechism, I would ask them the, the first two questions of the children's catechism. Who made you? God. What else did God make? All things. The psalmist tells us that in verse 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell in it. Psalm 100, know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us. We are His. The Lord has made us. He owns us. We are His. But not only that, in Genesis 5, in speaking of the creation of mankind, it says, when God created man, meaning man and woman, He made him in the likeness of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, we bear the likeness of God. Not only that, but he puts his name on us. Numbers 6, 23 through 27. You'll hear this often at the end of our worship. The Lord said, speak to Aaron and his son, saying, thus shall you bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall you put My name on them, upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. For God to put His name on us is to establish a special connection with us, a unique relationship of protection, of blessing, of ownership, and on our part, responsibility. I love all the kids in our church, but only three of them bear my name. And so my relationship with them will be different than it will be with all the other children because they bear my name. When God puts His name on us, He's establishing a special covenant relationship where He promises to be ours. He promises to bless us and He directs us how we are to live out that blessing. Now picture the scene. Jesus holding the coin, the denarius. And He says, who made this? 
Whose image, whose likeness does it bear? Whose name is inscribed on it? And they answer rightly, Caesar. And so he says, then give it back to Caesar. And then he says, now give to God what is God's. And the implication is, what has God made? What bears the likeness, the image of God? Where has God placed and inscribed His name? You see, Christians, what He is saying. Just as surely as the coin belonged to Caesar, you belong to God. So whatever duties you have on earth, you have a higher one. You have a higher obligation matching your true citizenship. In Philippians 3, we are reminded that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That affects how you view and interact with all your other earthly relationships. Like Israel and Babylon. You know, after the, the, the kings had led Israel into sin for so many generations and the prophets had warned them, judgment is coming. Finally, judgment came and Babylon came to Jerusalem and leveled it and destroyed the temple and carried off the people of Israel into Babylon and forced them to settle in a foreign land and serve a foreign people. And if you're one of the people of God, your heart is aching and you're remembering your true home and you're thinking of that and you're thinking, how can I live in Babylon and sing the songs of my home, Jerusalem? How, why would I ever consider obeying a foreign king? Should I not be fighting against an earthly king here in Babylon? And the Lord gave them instructions on how to live in Babylon. Instructions they did not expect. In Jeremiah 29, He commanded those in Babylon, He said, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. He didn't say to the exiles in Babylon, Pray for Jerusalem. Pray for the welfare. He did say that. He said, pray for the peace and welfare of, of Jerusalem that will be restored. But also, while in Babylon, pagan Babylon, pray for it. Don't just pray for it. Seek its welfare. Do what's best for the place where you are called to live in exile. God does not call His people to be hostile in the land of our exile. If you're missing the analogy, we are Israel, the people of God. And earth, whatever nation we are in, China, Russia, America, we are in exile. This is our Babylon, whatever nation we are in. And we are called to live at peace as far as that's possible. He also says, don't put your hope there. Sing the songs of your homeland. Preserve its memory. Bear in mind always your citizenship and your belonging. You belong to the Lord. He made you. You have His likeness. You bear His name. That is a blessing and that is a calling. A calling to put all we have at His disposal like we sang earlier. Take Myself and I will be ever only all for Thee. So what does that mean on a practical level? We pray in the Lord's Prayer, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Familiar words that just kind of roll off our tongues sometimes without us thinking about what they mean. If we are His, if we are made by Him, if we bear His image, 
if we carry His name, then those words, your kingdom come, your will be done, should not just express our desire, our hope. They express our plan, our calling, our direction. What is God's will for the world? And how can we carry that out? My life is not mine to do with as I please. My life is given to me for a purpose. To render to God the things that are His. And though our text today leaves us there with the the enemies of Jesus marveling at the, the wisdom of His answer and their inability to trap Him, I don't want to end on that note. There are many different ways that things can belong to me. Sorry. There are many different things that belong to me. Actually, I was just cleaning in my garage the other day, and most of the tools I have uh, are my father's. And coincidentally, not coincidentally, I have my father's name. He was Robert Paul Edenfield. I'm Robert Paul Edenfield II. And my son Trey, number three, Robert Paul Edenfield III, Trey. So my dad, because he had all these tools in an environment where he was worried they were going to be stolen at his workplace, he carved his initials on every tool, and I do mean every. I mean, you pull out his socket wrench set, and every single socket has RPE on it, okay? There are different ways that things can belong to me. Now, I've inherited those. They are mine, and look, they have my name on them, conveniently. I like that. I have tools that are mine for a purpose. They have my initials on them, tools I use and own because I only care about their usefulness. And if they break or if they go missing, I can replace them. No big deal. And the way that I've set out this idea of belonging to the Lord, of bearing His image and His name, it might sound an awful lot like that. God owns you, and you are a replaceable tool in His cabinet that He will discard if it doesn't work well enough. It's easy to be so focused on God as our Lord and our Master that we fail to see Him as Father and Savior. So I want to look at one other passage about belonging to God. Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord, He who created made you, O Jacob. He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you. I give peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is what called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. He has made you. He has created you. He has formed you. He has shaped you in His image. And He has put His name on you. Why? Just to use you? Just to put you to work? No. He has done it because He loves you. Because you are precious in His eyes. Just as I love my children. And I put my name on them. And they belong to me. He has given His own life in return for you. Did you see that? Did you catch that in Isaiah? I will give lives in exchange for yours. 
Not just any lives. He comes and gives His own life in exchange for ours to seal us as belonging to Him. To put His name of blessing upon us. And what does He tell us to do as a result? Not get to work. No. He says, because you belong to Me, because you are Mine, fear not. Fear not. We call Him King. In all we do. We aim to honor Him. Why? Because we belong to Him. Because of His, as we will sing in a moment, because of His amazing love. Let's thank the Lord for that amazing love whereby He calls us, makes us, redeems us, puts His name on us because we are precious in His sight. If that doesn't motivate us to give everything back to Him, nothing will. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your goodness to Your people. We thank You that You have made us. You have redeemed us. You have given us Your image. You have placed Your name upon us. You have removed from us the reason to fear. You have given lives in exchange for ours, even Your own. Teach us to find joy in that. Teach us to find our obedience in that. Teach us, though we may be humbled under other authorities, teach us that we are yet Your children. And there is a greater glory that awaits. We thank You for all these things. In the name of our Savior we pray. Amen.